mascot is assistant professor of law at Scalia Law School and co-director of the Gray Center, recently returned from the Justice Department. And she'll be interviewing someone else uh, recently, I guess, recently departed the Justice Department who also has directed the Gray Center. So I'll let Jen do the full introduction. Well, thanks so much, Adam, and thanks to you all for taking the time to join us today. I know everybody has a lot uh, going on, a lot we could be doing on this beautiful day, but we are just delighted to host this conversation with uh, Naomi Rao, judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, who prior to that, and one of her many past roles that we'll talk about this morning, founded this center. And so Scalia Law School is very grateful for then-Professor Rao's teaching and role in starting the center. And just to walk through a bit of her extensive career, which has at multiple points intersected with presidential administration. So she's the perfect person to keynote the event today. Uh, but she started um, out uh, going to um, Yale for undergrad, got her JD from Chicago. She was a law clerk to Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit, and then a law clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas. Spent a little bit of time in private practice, was in the White House Counsel's Office during the Bush 43 administration. A prof- worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee, was a professor for many years at Scalia Law School, administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and then uh, her second appointment was to the D.C. Circuit. So um, just a lot to talk about this morning. And if we could start with the first place in which your career uh, explicitly intersected with presidential administration, your time as in the White House Counsel's Office. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you did there and how that laid the groundwork for your future scholarship? Sure. Um, thanks, Jen. And thanks, thanks for that introduction. It is, it's really a pleasure to be here. Um, as Jen said, I founded the center. And um, so it is near and dear to my heart. And I'm so grateful to Adam for his excellent stewardship of the center since I left. And so pleased that Jen has now joined him to, uh, to see the center into its next uh, phase of development. So it's really really great to be here with all of you today. Um, But to your question, um, so you asked about the, yeah, so the White House Counsel's Office, I was an associate counsel to President Bush, um, George W. Bush, and that really was my first experience with presidential um, presidential administration. Um, As an associate White House counsel, I oversaw a number of legal policy and a number of agencies, including the EPA and Interior and the energy, energy department, um, worked on judicial nominations. And um, working in the council's office is really a place where almost every day there are questions arising about the proper scope of executive power, about executive power in relationship to Congress, um, about the executive power in light of judicial decisions that may have been decided, about things that the, that the executive branch has done. So it was really an amazing um, opportunity to kind of see, you know, from the nerve center of the White House, um, how legal policy was formulated across the executive branch. And um, so that was really was my first sort of foray there. So you said one of the things you did was look at sometimes policy issues with agencies. Would you have been intimately familiar with the work of OIRA at that time, the agency that you went on later to head? Um, I had some interaction with yeah. OIRA and uh, an OMB, um, but, um, but, you know, in the council's office, mostly you focused on the legal policy side of things. So we'd review regulations, but mostly it would be, you know, from the legal perspectives. And you mentioned having to think through issues of executive power. And so there are also certain entities within the Department of Justice that have to think about those issues. Did you find that your work 
intersected much with DOJ, or could you talk a little bit about how um, the White House Counsel's Office might interact with the Justice Department? Sure. Right, and uh, um, Jen was a deputy in the Office of Legal Counsel, so she, um, you know, the Counsel's Office and, and the Office of Legal Counsel work really closely together um, on a lot of issues. I, I used to think about it in the counsel's offices. Oftentimes, you know, you don't really have time to sit and think through some thorny legal issue because you have 50 issues on your desk. And so then you call your friends over at the Office of Legal Counsel <laughs> who have maybe a little bit more time to think through some of the questions and then um, share their insights with you. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, part of the job of the counsel's office is to work very closely with lawyers from across the executive branch. Um, at DOJ in terms of litigation positions, um, with OLC in terms of um, thorny issues, but also with legal, with agency counsel across, uh, across the agencies as well. Yeah, and it's, it seems to me that one of the advantages of being able to tap into those resources in the White House Counsel's Office is because, as you say, you're dealing with sort of the really busy issues of the day. Um, um, one of my na neighbors was in the White House Counsel's Office for the um, Obama administration, and she talks about it very similarly. Um, but that you can then get the expertise of not only the appointed folks, but also the longstanding folks in Justice Department or other agencies who have a sense of the history of how things have always been done. Mm -hmm. And so it's not as though they have to revisit every issue from scratch, it seems to me. Um, at least in the Justice Department, it seemed to us that generally speaking on questions of executive power, the threshold executive branch interests tended to be somewhat uniform across administrations. That was my experience as well. I mean, we relied, um, of course, on the political appointees at DOJ, but also the career folks who often had um, many more years of experience. And so they had knowledge of many earlier precedents that were either published or unpublished and how things had been handled in the past. And there is a lot of continuity from administration to administration. So I do think some of those career lawyers are incredibly valuable in terms of their experience and what they can share. Absolutely. And did you, how did your time in the White House intersect with your time in the Senate? And did you go to be on the legal teaching market right from your time in the White House? How did those jobs fit together? So I worked in the, on the Senate Judiciary Committee, actually in between my clerkships. Um, I actually was hired by Justice Thomas because I was having lunch in the Senate cafeteria, which is a different story, but a um, great one if you want to tell us about it. Um, well, you know, maybe another time. Okay. But the justice <laughs> jokes that um, you know he was afraid that after that, like everyone would just sit around the Senate cafeteria waiting for like their Supreme Court clerkship to show up. So he was like, "Don't share this story with anyone." Well, if you know um, Justice Thomas, it's just a function <laughs> of him being so friendly that he can get to know everyone. That it would be very like him to get to know somebody well enough in the cafeteria over lunch that he could hire them as a clerk. So, um, yeah, funny. so yes, yeah, so I worked in the I worked in the Senate for a year between my clerkships, and that was also really interesting because I do think Congress is um, a very difficult institution to understand unless you go and work in Congress. You can sort of read about Congress, but really um, getting to understand the way legislation is made and the way people think about those issues it's very difficult unless you spend some time in Congress. And so, I think having a little more than a year in Congress was really valuable to me in terms of thinking about separation of powers and, and how the first branch of our government works in practice. That was, um, that was a really good education for me. And it was a very interesting time to be there as well. So. Well, it's fascinating you say that because I was going to ask later how you found your earlier experiences to shape your work. But do you, since you mentioned it, do you, I mean, do you think that your interest in later years, it, 
in one of your areas of scholarship being the questions of delegation and congressional role in lawmaking, that part of that stemmed from that year in the Senate? Did you start thinking about those issues about how Congress and executive power interact? Um, it certainly was. Um, it was certainly a part of my development of my thinking about that. Um, it is, you know, the, the first branch of government is often missing in action on a lot of important policy issues. And I think you see that when you are in Congress, just how difficult it is to actually pass legislation, even on issues of great importance on which Congress is really the proper branch to make a decision, um, which is why a lot of important policies are initiated and wholly formulated within the executive branch, which I think is not entirely the system that was created by our Constitution. Um, and so, did, and so you, you, you said that you did the Senate work between your clerkships, and then did you go right into academia from the White House? I did. Okay. I did. So I went to Scalia Law right from the White House Counsel's Office. And what were some of the classes that you taught there, and what would you see as some of your most important uh, work from a scholarship standpoint? So at Scalia Law is interesting. I think at every law school, they have, you know, um, 90% of the faculty wants to teach constitutional law, but that is not true at the Scalia <laughs> Law School. So um, when I showed up there, I was able to teach Con Law 1, which was great uh, for a first-year faculty member. And I also taught comparative constitutional law, which was something I was interested in based on my scholarship. And I had spent some time in England working at a law firm. So that was a really interesting class to teach as well. Um, I also taught legislation and statutory interpretation for a number of years. Um, which was another class kind of near and dear, near and dear to my, near and dear to my heart. So. Um, and how did, how did you get from teaching those classes? Then your first set of scholarship was in some questions involving dignity. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you see that? Did that stem from some earlier work you had issues you would have covered previously in your government jobs? Or how did you start thinking about those questions? Um, and did you think later on, I mean, it came up at your confirmation hearing about the intersection between those and due process, that folks had a grasp of what you were saying there? Or? Yeah, so I was very interested in the concept of dignity in constitutional law, in part from my time in Europe, where um, dignity is incorporated into a number of European constitutions. It's part of the UN's Declaration of Human Rights, um, protects a right to dignity. And then um, our Supreme Court, a number of decisions about individual rights, mostly in decisions by Justice Kennedy, talked about rights of dignity. And I thought it would be interesting to think about the different ways in which dignity is used in constitutional law, because it's obviously a concept without any um, firm legal meaning. You know, it's not like liberty or um, freedom or a right. It's, you know, it's something else. And so... Um, I spent some time in several articles talking about the different concepts of dignity in constitutional law. And um, I'm not sure that that was entirely related to. At some point, you know, my interest shifted more to thinking about constitutional law and the administrative state, because I think most of the, the real world problems in constitutional law are about administ the administrative state. And um, so I think my scholarship took a different direction then after some years. And what initially gave you the idea um, and how did things come together to form this center where, I mean, because you took it so seriously that not only were you teaching, I guess, in areas of administrative law, writing in it, but then formed the center. What was it initially designed to do? Um, how did it, how did it um, help to um, expand on your scholarship the first few years? Yeah, it, um, 
it seemed to me, that, you know, looking around that there were a lot of academic centers devoted to particular administrative law topics. You know, you see law schools have environmental law clinics or um, centers or immigration law, national security law, you know, particular areas. But there was no center that I um, was aware of that was really focused on thinking about the foundations of the administrative state. And that's what I was was interested in. And um, Henry Butler, who was then becoming the dean of the law school, he actually, <laughs> he said to me, he's like, I'd like you to be the associate dean. I said, I definitely don't want to be the associate dean, but I, <laughs> that seems like a terrible job. But um, I would love to um, start a center. And he was like, that's a great idea. So, um, you know, with a little bit of seed money um, from Boyd and Gray and a few other um, foundations, um, I was able to, to get the center started. And and really, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad to see at least some of the events at the center are following a similar model, you know, which is where you get great scholars together from different perspectives to write papers um, and to workshop them and to think through them and then to um, look at some of the more real world applications of the scholarship. And I think that was sort of my idea for the center was that there are some really thorny problems and it's hard to talk about them just from the perspective of public policy. You need to have some deeper work on some of these issues. And, um, but, you know, how do we bring together that type of deep scholarship with um, real world debates that we're having about it, the administrative state? And, and that was really the, the idea behind it. So, yeah, to sort of pick topics or suggest topics or work, hear from academics about what they think are topics that need to be studied and then try to foster scholarship and right. edit the papers and get them published in publications around the country. And and you mentioned Foundations of the Administrative State, which reminds me of the title of a seminar that you started with Justice Thomas at Scalia Law School, which I'm happy to inherit in your absence. <laughs> He'll be coming back in the spring. Um, and he, a word about him, I mean, he just loves being with students. He actually does a fall seminar at um, GW on con law every year. Um, but how did you and he together come up with the idea for this seminar? What did it cover? Um, and how did the study that you did in that class shape, if at all, your later work in the administration? Yeah, um, well, I'm really, I'm sure as you are, really grateful that the Justice will teach classes with his former law clerks. Um, it was probably the most fun I had teaching a, a seminar. But, but the idea behind the class was really to, you know, to go back and read original sources from the founding up through the present thinking about, um, you know, what were the concepts of the administrative state at the founding? How did that change over time? Um, we talked a lot about the progressive conception of the administrative state, um, which I think is very different from, um, you know, what were their justifications and understandings of what they were doing um, at the time, which I think is very different from modern defenders of the administrative state. I think the narrative of the administrative state has, has changed substantially. And so I think tracing that development over time in topics about, you know, judicial review and the scope of agency action and, and of course, non-delegation and all of these topics. Um, it was a really interesting class, although um, Justice Thomas, I think, thought that I had assigned too much reading. Um, he always says that, you know, there was like no, thir the 13th Amendment did not apply to my seminar. <laughs> you know, it was like uh, in, you know, like servitude, how much reading I had. I mean, it might so. have been, it might have been <laughs> thousands of pages. It was a lot of pages. It was a lot of pages. But it was less than I had actually wanted to. Assume, but, <laughs> you <know>. Well, you <laughs> know. But it was, you know, but yeah, there was a lot to cover. So there was um, a lot to cover. Yeah. Hopefully you're, you're kinder to the students, but uh, yeah, well. <laughs> I, I try, well, you know, I, I 
Yeah. You know, it's all about approach, right? I mean, you can generally talk about the themes of a lot of reading or try to, but it's good. No, no, I, I actually, I mean, with Naomi's expertise, the first time I did it a couple of years ago, pretty much just started with her syllabus, you know, and just fine-tuned it. And it was really fabulous. And the students had a great discussion. So, I mean, so you're talking about the development of administrative law. Earlier, you mentioned that, um, you know, issues with Congress and legislating have a big impact on um, the executive branch and maybe Congress could be doing more. I mean, could you explore for us a little bit more about how you think the role of Congress ideally could change and what the negative impact maybe is when Congress is not legislating? Like, what's the practical impact in the executive branch? Before we talk about your role at OIRA, I just want to get a general sense about the branches interacting and talk about how you help to manage that from inside the administration. Um, Well, I I mean, I think the, the Constitution vests the legislative power with Congress. And I think there are a lot of important and deep reasons why it did that. I mean, the people's representatives should set the laws for individuals and corporations and, and everyone else. And um, so I think non-delegation is, is just sort of like, a, is a very deep principle of the structural constitution and, and maybe the most important separation of powers principle that we have. Um, and, you know, we live in a world which, um, which a lot of what is effectively legislative power is exercised by, by agencies. And that has consequences um, I think for a lot of things, um, most particularly democratic accountability, which there's a kind of democratic accountability in the executive branch if there is presidential administration, as this conference is talking about. But um, it's a very different type of accountability than um, the accountability that results from a collective process of lawmaking within Congress. So do you see hope for um, kind of a reinvigorated more detailed lawmaking or updated lawmaking? And if not, um, what's the compensating force within the executive branch? As an executive branch official, how, how can one try to be um, accountable to the people's interest when executing broad delegations? That's a tough question, right? Um, I guess I can just say one of the things that I tried to do when I was at OIRA in terms of reviewing regulatory policy was often agencies would come with a regulatory proposal and they would have no statutory authority for it. Um, and I would say, well, well, where's your statutory authority? And they would say, well, we've always done it this way. And then I would say, well, surely then you have a statutory hook for this thing you've always done. Um, and then, you know, they point to some general thing that says we have rulemaking authority, but that doesn't really get you what you need. And so I think one way that the executive branch um, can can help this is just not to exercise, you know, like overly broad, exercise power within overly broad delegation. Now, of course, that is, that requires a lot of self-restraint um, and, you know, administrations don't always want to do that. But I do think it's one way that the executive branch can, can kind of encourage Congress to take action simply just by not acting within overly expansive delegations. Okay, so not taking overly expansive expansive um, steps in response to the statutes. I mean, so just to be sort of raise a cynical question there, though, if the if the executive is to take care of the law, is there a sense in which if the president's not exercising as broad an authority as he or she has been given, is that then not playing out the proper executive role? How do you how do you synthesize all of those competing considerations? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, under a very broad delegation, what exactly is the executive branch executing 
right? If there's just a general standard, it's maybe not execution of the law. It starts to look, the more it looks like legislating, probably the better off we are if Congress takes those actions. And can you just also explain, I mean, maybe most folks here know, but as the head of OIRA, as a practical matter, what did that job look like? What's generally the process that a regulation goes through from being formed within the agency Notice the comment process, OIRA. Does OIRA see a um, informal rule before it uh, before it goes through notice the notice period? Does it see it before and then after? What's the whole sure. process? So, um, I mean, OIRA <coughs> reviews all the significant <coughs> regulatory action in the executive branch, um, with the exception of the historically independent agencies. Um, but everything else that's a significant regulatory policy goes through a wire. And often we do get involved at the front end in terms of um, helping agencies, you know, conceive of and draft regulations. Sometimes regulations come to OIRA kind of fully baked. But um, so we're really, the office is involved with regulatory policy at, I would say at all levels um, of conceptualizing through approval. Do you, did you find that with many of the regulations you examined, I mean, my, my recollection from being on, on the DOJ side of things, which often would interact with OIRA um, because of a DOJ or often joint DOJ-DHS regulation that um, needed to, to receive OIRA approval, is that sometimes there, there was the process that we would have to go through to get OIRA's comments on our initial draft and go back and forth. And then there was a process where OIRA actually sends often regulations out to other agencies that aren't directly involved in the action. And that then sometimes became almost like an adjudicative body between the agencies. Did you have to get involved in disputes between agencies frequently or did staff handle that? Yeah. So I think one of the the real advantages of OIRA is that it does, um, because it oversees regulatory policy across the executive branch, we run this interagency process, right? So we, um, we, we do um, the process of interagency review includes White House offices, includes other agencies. Regulations are kind of circulated around the executive branch. Um, we get comments from a number of people, and then we try to reconcile them. And um, that ensures, at least in theory, that regulatory policy is consistent across the executive branch. Hopefully, we are not having a lot of redundancies or um, inconsistencies, duplications. I mean, this is the thing that regulated entities are often really concerned with is, um, you know, they have so many different regulatory agencies with different requirements. So so there are a lot of practical um, functions. I mean, I think, you know, and I think all of that is um, is important for, I think, what the main ultimate goal of OIRA is, which is really to sort of operationalize the unitary executive. Um, it's the way in which, you know, if the president is supposed to oversee administration, OIRA is probably the main vehicle by which the president can do that. <coughs> it would be impossible for the president otherwise to have a handle on all the regulations coming out of all the many federal agencies that exist. Okay, so that's interesting. So OIRA operationalizes the unitary executive and sort of has a measure of control over policy, although I mean, in recent administrations, for sure folks said this about the Trump administration, and so far it seems to be true of the Biden administration as well, that there's a lot of work going on through executive orders. So maybe the executive order is actually directing an agency to consider certain regulations. Maybe an executive order is being put out when maybe the president otherwise could pick up the phone and call and give a directive, but he she's operating for, he's operating through the executive order instead. So, I mean... Does that, how does that impact the OIRA role? And does that take 
control away from OIRA doesn't mean OIRA is getting the, getting the um, regulations at a later step in the process. Um, how did the executive orders impact your work in a day-to-day way? I think executive orders are almost, um, you know, they're by necessity at a very high level of generality, right? So, um, so presidents issue very broad executive orders, you know, directing agencies or other entities, you know, to, to do something. But it's not usually very specific. And so, um, you know, I think it's, it's funny. I do sometimes think there's a misunderstanding about executive orders. Like they're the one way that the president can direct people, right? I mean, the president can direct an agency in any way that he chooses. He could just pick up the phone and call the agency head and say, I would like you to think about regulating in this area. Um, you know, so there's a certain kind of transparency and accountability if you put it into an EO. But I think it's, in some ways, it's just sort of a formal way of embodying presidential direction, mm-hmm. which, um, and it's usually, of course, you know, it's a couple of pages. And maybe what results from that is 10, you know, thousand page regulations. So absolutely, the agencies still have a lot of work to do. Right. And you, we talked a little bit about OIRA and its role in agency general policymaking through the regulations. I mean, I always, at least before going into government, would think of OIRA as kind of the cost benefit analysis shop within the administration. And um, Ben was learned, I guess, being in government, that that's only really one aspect of what you're doing. And um, also that many regulations sometimes seem to be exempt from that analysis. And so, I mean, how big of a role did you find cost-benefit analysis really played in the end with review of regulations? Yeah. Um, you know, I do think different OIRA administrators have different views about this. You know, so sometimes um, OIRA administrators are PhD economists and they care a lot about cost-benefit analysis. Um, I'm a constitutional law professor, so I care a lot about constitutional law. But um, no, I think cost-benefit analysis is really important. Um, and I guess for this reason, just sort of as a practical matter, um, it is very hard to justify regulatory action that does not produce net benefits for society, right? I mean, if we're trying to figure out, is this regulation a good idea? One proxy for that is, you know, does it create more benefits for the American people than costs? And um, so I think that is a, is a really good rubric. And we have excellent staff at OIRA who are very rigorous in their cost-benefit analysis. You know, a lot of the, the trick, of course, is, you know, what goes into the cost side and what goes into the benefit side. So I think sometimes it's not always so satisfying, but it is a good um, metric for thinking about what is socially beneficial. And you mentioned staff. I mean, OIRA is within the White House, essentially, the executive office of the president, but is it a small P political entity? Is it mostly appointed staff? Is it mostly career staff? Does it have consistent positions across administration like we sometimes think the Office of Legal Counsel mm-hmm. does? OIRA has a surprisingly small staff. I think it's probably around 55 people now. Um, It's mostly career staff. There are three or four political um, folks at OIRA. When I was there, we were, I guess, four political um, appointees and 55 or so um, career staff. But the career staff are really, um, I don't know, from my experience, some of the best in the entire government. I mean, they are really, they all have advanced degrees. They have a tremendous amount of expertise. and you know, in some some instances, maybe agency officials are not so interested in working on the president's priorities. But at OIRA, the staff is very institutionally committed to helping the presidential priorities, whatever they may be at that time. So the staff was incredibly helpful to me in terms of pursuing the deregulatory agenda and 
figuring out how to create a regulatory budget and implement all of these very sort of ambitious, um, ambitious goals that we had for regulatory policy. So, although, as you mentioned, you don't give the same review to independent agencies as to executive departments, which seems to me to be a really big hole in terms of like, if one is thinking about the presidential administration as a whole, right, the Securities and Exchange Commission, FTC, CFPB, these are um, entities with enormous policymaking power. And so does OIRA have, and the White House have no role? Is there any sense in which the president, how does he interact with the heads of those commissions? Or are they just sort of out there operating completely independently, like we think of under Humphrey's executor? I mean, I think they operate largely free from presidential direction. I mean, I think it's an open question how much presidents could decide constitutionally to exert direction over the independent agency heads. But, but it is a big gap because especially um, after Dodd-Frank and a number of other statutes that have been passed in the last 10, 15 years, um, a lot of the independent agencies have tremendous regulatory authorities that they've been exercising. And um, you know, when I was at OIRA, I was a pretty vocal advocate for bringing the independent agencies within um, OIRA review, you know, on the simple grounds that, you know, I think it's a pretty straightforward argument. These agencies are exercising executive power. All the executive power is vested in the president. And so it becomes hard to understand why um, the president can't exert direction and control over the independent agencies. So, um, but it is a big gap and it makes it hard because there are a lot of conflicting and overlapping regulatory requirements imposed by independent agencies because there is no centralized clearinghouse. I mean, there are mechanisms in the Treasury Department and there's the FSOC and there are other things that that maybe serve some of this harmonizing function, but there are a lot of, um, you know, there are a lot of agencies that are essentially operating independently of any type of direction. So, um, it's interesting with OIRA control of, of independent agencies who are thinking through that. I mean, so most recently, the Office of Legal Counsel, I think it was published the end of 2020, but signed the end of 2019. And it was based on a position of the Office of Legal Counsel going well back to other administrations, I think maybe even billing on some work from Cass Sunstein, certainly thinking through themes that Justice Kagan raised in presidential administration. But the, the Office of Legal Counsel actually um, published publicly released a signed opinion saying that consistent with past executive orders, the Constitution, statutory authority, that actually OIRA should be able to have some review of independent agencies. But the Trump administration did not operationalize it. And so far, the Biden administration has not. I mean, what what do you think is the cause for that? Why would a president be told that he can exercise power and then not do it? Are there costs? politically to doing it that make it prohibitive? That's a good question. I mean, they've been, um, since OIRA was created by, I guess, sort of created by President Carter, but really, you know, President Reagan, um, they've been thinking about this question about independent agency review. And the Office of Legal Counsel, as you said, has had a consistent position that it would be constitutional for OIRA to review independent agency regulations in an opinion drafted by then Cass Young, the young Cass Sunstein in the Reagan administration. Um, so, you know, why do presidents not take that power? I, I don't know. It's a good question. Um, you know, with, you know, exerting control requires also some responsibility. And um, so I'm, I'm not sure. 
I mean, do we think it's a time thing? I mean, if, if all of a sudden OIRA had to review every SEC regulation or if the Fed Reserve was do, doing something or um, CFPB, I mean, would it have the capacity to do it right now? Well, OIRA has actually expanded its staff and had expanded it in anticipation of hopefully reviewing independent agency regulations, which did not come to pass. But, um, but you know, those are just resource constraints and, you know, resource constraints can be remedied. I'm not sure what the, the principled or political um, reason is that none of the presidents since Reagan have decided to, to take this power. Could it be a time thing? Like if, like if the president wants to operate quickly or the, those agencies, I mean, as a practical matter, if an, if a rule doesn't have to come within a wide review, because maybe it's just internal procedure or whatever versus rules that do, what is the typical time implication of that? Is it adding months to the process to go through OIRA, weeks? Does it depend on the size of the rule? It really varies. Yeah. Um, I mean, we can do pretty quick turnaround when necessary, but some of the bigger regulations, you know, can take a few months, certainly, you know. Depends on how quickly everybody else wants to move because it is an interagency process. So. so it does add time, you know, and, you know, having those types of checks imposes a cost on getting regulations out, sure. And how has all of your, this work we've been talking about, your work in presidential administration and then um, your scholarship informed your work now on the D.C. Circuit, which is thought around the country to be the second most important core behind the Supreme Court because you get a lot of core uh, questions. You also often get a lot of um, significant regulations to review because of the way that the venue provisions are written, uh, almost always permitting review in the D.C. Circuit, even if some of the relevant action doesn't take place there. So um, any sort of general way in which your prior work has shaped your perspective to your current lifelong job? Yeah. Um, Well, I think one of the things that has been helpful is having had the opportunity to see legal decision-making in the political branches, I think gives me a particular perspective of how to think about decision-making in the judicial branch. I mean, I think all of these I have always had a sort of strongly departmentalist view, which is that each of the branches has to interpret the Constitution for itself. And so having had the experience of how other branches undertake this decision making gives me a sense of, you know, what is the proper scope of the judicial power? You know, how is it different from the power that's exercised by the other branches? Um, I guess I would say it's also given me some perspective of why it's important for judges to um, fully exercise the judicial power to decide the cases that come before them um, and not unnecessarily avoid issues, you know, but at the same time to also be mindful about the limits on the judicial power, which are also very real. Um, And the understanding of the limits, I think, also comes from a sense of how far the executive and legislative powers go, right? Because they're all interconnected. And so, you know, thinking about both the scope and limits, I think, has helped an appreciation for what the other branches do. So you mentioned departmentalism, which I guess in its just most basic form is this idea that, you know, all federal officials, president, members of Congress take an oath to the Constitution. So in their own job, they have a, their own duty to interpret and follow the Constitution, whether a judge is sitting there telling them to do so or not. Um, and we're actually talking about this a lot this uh, semester at Scalia Law School because we have a separation of powers in the political branches seminar now looking at this sort of fight back and forth between Congress and the executive. 
And then uh, working in the Office of Legal Counsel, my own background, we that is the shop that um, comments on legislation and ultimately is involved in signing statements. And so one common area where this will come up is it's great, you know, to say that the president can have his view or should have his view of the law. Congress should have their view of what complies with the Constitution. But as a practical matter, if the two branches disagree, um, is it then just the court's role to step in? Should it be stepping in more? I mean, what happens if there's a law and the president just doesn't feel like he needs to comply with an aspect of it? Who, 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 who answers that problem? Um, well, I think it really it depends on the context. Um, you know, there are ways in which you can review um, the failure of the executive branch to act. Um, they are limited for the courts, I think. It's fair to say, although there is some APA um, mechanisms for reviewing agency inaction. Um, you know, I think, you know, in part, it's, it's not just about refereeing disputes between them, but, you know, we have our own independent obligation to say what the law is. And, you know, we can certainly look to what Congress or the president think that, thinks that the law is or what it means, um, but ultimately we have to decide for ourselves. And I suppose some of it, too, we might think would hopefully get worked out in the small P political processes as well, right? Like if Congress tells the executive branch to do something, they say no. Congress could always reduce appropriations or whatever, hopefully, and work this, right. these disputes out before it reaches you all in the form of case of controversy. Um, so I, on, on that note, I mean, we have time and we can come back and do more of our dialogue, but we have a lot of scholars here and private practitioners who I'm sure... Um, have questions for you. And we just have a wealth of knowledge here with uh, Judge Rao and experience. So do folks have questions they would be interested in us discussing? Who wants to be courageous and go first? Okay, Garrett, one of my former students is always courageous to ask a question. So go for it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, Garrett Snedeker, wearing two hats, Galea Law School student and uh, Deputy Director of the James Wilson Institute. So my question was about departmentalism. I wrote it out before you had a nice back and forth on it, but um, how do you understand the difference between, this is to um, uh, Judge Rao, but of course, Professor Mascot, um, jump right in. Um, how do you understand the difference between how the Lincoln administration defied the court in Dred Scott by issuing passports and patents to blacks versus in the present day, how the Biden administration defied the court in the Alabama Realtors case in continuing the eviction moratorium? Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I can't speak to that because that, that issue may well come before me. In fact, the eviction moratorium was before me um, last month, so. Yeah, yeah so, I'm sorry. So, no, that's yeah. but general, so more general. So Garrett, Garrett, I'm sure you'll think in a few minutes about how to reformulate the a, a question, question in a more general, general <laughs> Sorry, way. Sorry, I can't answer it. But how about like her role in um, agencies? And we have ad law professors here who must have questions about intersection between or presidential administration um, and OIRA review. Chris Walker. I, I was curious, you know, celebrating, commemorating. Based on your time at OIRA, like, how ac is it? Is it still good? I mean, is that still the like the right framing, or do you, do you did you kind of have a different take being on the ground at OIRA in in the last administration? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I think the general descriptions in presidential administration are pretty accurate. I mean, I think of 
um, I guess I've always thought of um, Justice Kagan's article as sort of unitary executive light. You know, if you, um, you know, you don't want to go all the way to where our friends, like, if you don't want to go all the way to like the John Yu unitary executive or the Sai Prakash unitary executive, you can have the Justice Kagan um, view of presidential administration, which, you know, focuses on a lot of functional and practical reasons for presidential control. And I think those are, those are certainly good reasons for presidential control. I do think that there are a lot of practical, um, good government reasons for that type of centralized oversight. And I think that's as true today as it was when she wrote her article. And, you know, so I think one of the things I've always thought was useful about that article is that it gives a perspective of how um, these principles are at least, you know, in her view, kind of loosely connected to the Constitution and then also justified by functional reasons, which I think has created a somewhat broader coalition or, you know, in support of presidential interpretation, which I think was a very useful contribution, um, even though my own scholarship and view tends to be more formalist. Yes, Professor Stack, Kevin Stack. So thanks so much for questions. Either of, I have two questions and pick either if you want to answer one or neither or both. So one is I, you, you've been in three branches of government. I'd be interested in just your characterization of, the, of how legal deliberation works in each of those branches in your experience. So there, are, there, are there distinctive differences about that? Uh, and then my second question is t- picking up on the departmentalist themes you know, we could also be departmentalists about statutory interpretation so that each branch could have their own unique perspective on statutory interpretation. I wonder whether what you think about that and have you, has that engaged your work on the court at all? Sure. Um, in terms of how it's different, um, well, you know, in Congress, there are certainly some members who focus a lot on, say, thinking about the constitutional authority they have. Um, when I was on the Judiciary Committee, one of my roles was to review bills for constitutionality. And I was only asked to do that, I think, once in the year plus I was there. So I think there's an attitude, at least generally in Congress, like, well, we can pass something and we'll see what happens in the courts. Um, and then I think in the executive branch, there is a lot of very serious legal deliberation, um, both at DOJ and the White House, at the agencies. Um, and I think one of the things that distinguishes that is, you know, there are times when there are some very strong policy objective and, you know, part of the role of a government lawyer is to figure out, like, is that just entirely foreclosed? Is there a space in which we can act? You know, what is the legitimacy of acting in that space? So I think, you know, that type of legal reasoning is much more connected to outcomes and action um, as is appropriate to the executive. And then I think um, in my role as a judge, you know, I think in some ways, maybe more similar to an academic. I feel like when I have a legal question before me, I'm trying to find the right answer um, under the text of a statute or its structure, um, looking at the precedents for what they're worth, longstanding legal principles that underlie all of these things. And so I think it's more of an exercise in what's the right answer, which I think is maybe different from what the political branches are. Someone is looking for what the right answer is, but there are a lot of other considerations in the political branches. Yes. Professor Arks. A gentle question? Oh. <laughs> um, on the independent agencies, now why couldn't the executive, I know Boyden's going to say to this, but why couldn't the executive simply tender kind of memo of advice to the agency? 
saying, these are the defects that we see in the program. Can you give us a better argument? Right? I think they could absolutely do that. Say, so, well, this is it's a simple method of sort of lifting the level of, of recent argument about these well, things. There are, um, there are some historical examples where independent agencies have informally consulted with OIRA, um, you know, where they will send a regulation over and get some feedback, even though it's not sort of a binding review. And um, I had talked to several independent agency heads about further developing those processes um, before I was appointed to the court. So, um, but there, there are lots of, there's lots of intermediate steps. I think, for um, reviewing what independent agencies do, short of, like, formal OIRA review. Yes. I was wondering if you could speak a little about the relationship between history and law in thinking about administration. Because in listening to your presentation, one thing that's so striking is the deep knowledge you have of the institutional practices of administration, which have evolved, but as you just referred to from a more formalist perspective, as we all know, the Constitution just doesn't say a lot about administration, and that's been a sort of anxiety that has haunted administrative law and practice for a while. So I was wondering, in your own experience as, a, as an academic and as a practitioner, how do you see the legitimacy of administration as informed by the continuous historical practice or the sort of gaps in the, in the law and doctrine? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I guess I would try to separate out two things. I think there are... Um, there are general questions about the legitimacy of various administrative structures or practices. Um, and I think those questions are largely separate from have agencies been actually doing this in the past, right? I think there are certain questions about the constitutionality of certain uh, administrative, um, administrative practices, and that is somewhat separate from what's actually happened. But I do think that what has actually happened is very helpful to understand for people who are. Um, who are actually doing the work of administration. And so when I was administrator of OIRA, I frequently said that my job was to make the government more constitutional. Like I wasn't, you know, I'm not sure, like I had the, I certainly didn't have the authority to make it all the way constitutional, but I could make it more constitutional by taking certain actions. And so I think understanding historical practices and what's happened before can be, um, one way to think about moving administration in a way that's closer to the original constitutional design. Yes. Hey there, thanks for being here. Um, a lot of the panelists this morning sort of characterized Congress as like an apathetic teenager that's not interested in doing its job. And so I'm wondering from your perch at OIRA, are you seeing other avenues that Congress is using to, to sort of check the executive branch either through um, more closely monitoring through the appointments process or the budget process to really constrain agencies? And are we just not seeing it in public because it just doesn't show up in a statute book? Um, well, I mean, I think there are lots of ways that Congress can act. You know, they conduct oversight hearings. They could do things through appropriations. Um, of course, its main power is legislative. So I think it is fair to, to look to see what Congress has done by statute. Um, I wrote an article some years back talking about some of the incentives that members of Congress have to delegate authority to agencies. I do think um, members of Congress and congressional offices spend a lot of time helping constituents and other interests manage their relationship with executive branch agencies. Um, and so that has become a bigger part of the congressional sort of load for members of Congress. 
So that is something I think that they spend more time doing or that their offices spend more time doing. Um, but that is also not exercising legislative power, arguably. Well, that's an interesting point. So if I can just take the moderator privilege to ask a follow-up. I mean, so staff obviously need to serve constituents, right, because they have to get reelected. And you you were in the, in the Senate. Um, I worked for a little while in the House and the Senate. And obviously the House is even more going to be focused on constituent services because every two-year uh, re-election. And doesn't seem as though, I mean, it has wonderful lawyers there, both chambers, but not nearly to the degree of the number of lawyers that you see in the executive branch, White House, DOJ, Agency General Counsel's Office. So do you think some of this could be addressed by, I mean, maybe Congress needs to staff up. Maybe we do want them looking more on the front end about policy development. Um, Is something constitutional? Could that be addressed by them? And it would be politically costly, maybe, but voting themselves larger staff budgets and just getting some offices full of lawyers to have their own little legislative OLC. They could certainly do that. They certainly could. They certainly could. I mean, you know, if they're going to delegate less authority, they probably do need more staff in order to legislate more. Um, But, yeah, that's a question for the political scientists. (laughs) Yes, uh, Kevin. And also, I just decided, I'm so happy to see so many Scalia Law students here today. This is so great. You all are interested in coming and taking your uh, academic learning outside of the classroom. So Instead thanks of playing for Frisbee, they're like... Exactly. Instead of, you're here with us. All right. Well, uh, thank you for being here. You talked a little bit about your uh, work at ORIRA and how it informed the transition to being a judge. One piece I was curious about is... When he talked about being the head of OIRA, it sounded like a lot of the job was to be skeptical of the agencies coming before you, whereas sitting on the bench, now all of a sudden, you ostensibly owe them a lot of deference. So how was that transition, and did that inform that at all? Yeah, that's that's, um, that's a good question. I, I was very skeptical of what agencies are doing. I mean, I don't know that it's so different. I mean, you know, at OIRA, a part of my job was to make sure agencies stayed within their statutory authority. I think that's something judges have to do. and the appropriate cases. Um, and so, you, you know, it's, I, I certainly had more control over what agencies did when I was head of OIRA than as a judge. You know, my role is pretty limited. And, and now it's the case, you know, agencies, you know, under Chevron deference, which is sort of the, the reigning framework. If, um, you know, there are a lot of times where it comes down to, did the agency do something reasonable? Um, it's not entirely a very satisfying way of exercising the judicial power to think about reasonableness as opposed to lawfulness, but, um, but, but that's where we are, I guess, with the current doctrines. So you've been so engaging answering questions, and I'm having so much fun, I'm losing track of time. Adam tells me we have several minutes, and so I was going to just ask you one last softer question about inside your chambers and law clerks. What are you looking for in a law clerk? What has your relationship been like with your law clerks? How have you generally organized your chambers? Sure. Well, so I have a former law clerk and a current law clerk here. Wave. Um, you know, having law clerks is one of the best parts of the job. Um, you know, I get all these, you know, smart and interesting young people to come clerk for me. And I mean, I'm looking for people who are really smart, who are intellectually very curious, you know, the kind of people who are reading all the law review articles and the cases and thinking about the big questions of law, but who are also um, detail-oriented enough to do the actual work of thinking through the cases. So. Um, yeah, I'm lucky. I get a lot of great law clerks and I work closely with them on all the cases. So it's, uh, it's a great, 
it's a great perk of the job to have, have these wonderful law clerks. That's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your afternoon with us. And thank you for founding the center and just talking with us very frankly. We're very grateful. Thank you so much.